Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, September 13th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, the big picture about last night's debate, Yang's big surprise, who got the most speaking time at the debate, what those protesters were saying, the Castro versus Biden moment and who was actually wrong there, and Buttigieg's closing statement. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, I'm going to attempt to make some sense of what happened at the debate in Houston last night from a big picture perspective. Overall, I think nothing changed. From an electoral perspective, the outcome of this particular event will probably lead to polling bumps for a small handful of candidates, especially Buttigieg, O'Rourke, and maybe Yang, and maybe Klobuchar, maybe Castro, but I don't see how this materially changes the landscape related to where people stand in this field. It's not like anybody rocketed up to the moon last night or anybody crashed down to Earth. I was also very wrong yesterday about all the speculation I had that we'd have Warren versus Biden fireworks. Yes, they disagreed, but at no point did that turn into a spectacle or something unbecoming of a civil debate. I was right that Biden spread his arguments among both Warren and Sanders, but, you know, you don't have to be a professional political podcast host to predict that. So, we have to talk about Biden. He has been the frontrunner throughout the primary and even before he announced, though he is currently facing real challenges from both Sanders and Warren. Biden started out strong last night. He legitimately put up a better performance during roughly the first half of the debate than we've seen from him lately. But there were moments in that second half where he kind of fell apart. The thing with the record player and the children is what I'm talking about there. There's also his refusal to answer the question about reparations, which fits a pattern where Biden seems averse to the idea of admitting he was wrong about something he said or did 40 years ago. It seems weird to me, but that's Biden. We know now for sure that Biden responds to these attacks on his former record by pivoting immediately to the idea that he is a good person and has done good things, so how dare you point out whatever thing he legitimately did wrong whenever that happened way long ago. But you know what? We've seen this exact same thing from Biden before, and honestly, it has not hurt him in the polls. I'm not sure why it would now. He did have a strong closing statement, and he also made a vigorous and, I think, well-received case that his health care plan sounds more realistic than Medicare for All. This is where we start to get into the difference between a primary debate and the general election. In the primary, I think the most engaged viewers and voters are likely to favor Medicare for All. But in the general election, that will probably change. Regardless of what you personally think is the better policy, Biden put forth a strong, clear, and simple message. His point was that he had a practical, incremental, and paid-for approach that wouldn't burn down the whole healthcare system. I suspect that message will play well with voters overall, even if it doesn't go well with a big chunk of the primary electorate. You saw the opposing message, clearly articulated by Sanders, where he made the case for, as he put it, the damn bill, but other candidates continued to chip away at that and painted it as potentially unrealistic. On healthcare, this event may mark a real turning point where candidates kind of back up and reassess the options around Obamacare plus a public option, which is mostly what Biden's plan is. And I think we even saw evidence of that when Biden essentially drew six other members of the field towards saying, thanks, Obama, in a non-ironic, sarcastic way. 
on the NPR Politics Podcast this morning, they actually made a montage of all those candidates thanking Obama and acknowledging what he had managed to do with Obamacare. The fact that Biden has by far the clearest link to Obama and that healthcare work specifically, well, that gives him a leg up. And if he makes it through the primary, it'll probably do so again in the general election. Okay, a few other things stood out to me. One was Beto O'Rourke. So how do I put this? As I read it, O'Rourke is no longer running to win. I'm sorry, but he is running on a platform of moral courage, and that is a beautiful, righteous, important thing, but it will not win him this primary. And I think he knows that, and I think he's fine with it. O'Rourke took strong moral stands repeatedly throughout the night, and he turned in his best debate performance yet. It will not matter to his overall prospects, but I respect him as an honest, moral person. The shootings in El Paso really have changed how he's treating this race, and I think the net effect of him sticking around and being so honest and so clear in his convictions will be to pull the remaining candidates toward more action on things like gun safety and potentially even reparations. Those are both issues he tackled head-on. Now, we saw a somewhat different approach from Amy Klobuchar. In one of those rare instances that my prediction yesterday was actually correct, Klobuchar grabbed the middle and held on tight. She made the case that she's from a purple state, and she kept putting that front and center. Again, in the context of a Democratic primary in 2019, that's a tricky place to be. But it gives her a good reason to stick around, and she might be able to draw a lot of the moderate vote because there just aren't that many people left on that stage who overlap with her in her political space. So big picture, this was three hours that maybe moved the needle a little on healthcare, a little on some of the lower polling candidates, and frankly, I think not much else. Next up, we talked yesterday about Andrew Yang's pre-announced surprise. Now, I thought it would be some kind of weird costume change, and I was wrong. In his opening statement, here's the Yang surprise. Entrepreneur Andrew Yang. In America today, everything revolves around the almighty dollar. Our schools, our hospitals, our media, even our government. It's why we don't trust our institutions anymore. We have to get our country working for us again, instead of the other way around. We have to see ourselves as the owners and shareholders of this democracy, rather than inputs into a giant machine. When you donate money to a presidential campaign, what happens? The politician spends the money on TV ads and consultants, and you hope it works out. It's time to trust ourselves more than our politicians. That's why I'm going to do something unprecedented tonight. My campaign will now give a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month for an entire year to 10 American families, someone watching this at home right now. If you believe that you can solve your own problems better than any politician, go to yang2020.com and tell us how $1,000 a month will help you do just that. This is how we will get our country working for us again, the American people. Mayor Pete Buttigieg. It's original, I'll give you that. (laughs) Now, I include the tail end there because you can hear a clear reaction from the other candidates. They are literally laughing at a fellow candidate. Now, yeah, this was a stunt. You typically don't begin your big debate by announcing a contest. At the same time, Yang's deeper point is worth listening to. 
he is expanding his universal basic income policy proposal in the context of the debate. I can only imagine how it feels for any candidate's supporters to hear their candidate openly laughed at on stage. And I can also assume the candidates doing the laughing don't want those votes, I guess? Okay, so here's the thing. The immediate discussion around Yang's proposal centered on whether it was legal because the funds came from his campaign rather than his own pocket. The FEC has rules around how campaign funds can be spent, and there is disagreement among experts about whether this particular use is acceptable. Reading here from an article in Time by Lysandra Villa, quote, If it's just given for no work done, for nothing at all, just a gift, that is inappropriate, says Anne Ravel, a Democrat and former FEC commissioner. You can't just give cash. I just cannot imagine the statement that's being used as an example or a test for how a policy would work would be enough to make it appropriate, says Ravel, who is running for a California state Senate seat, because it also has the secondary effect of looking like you're trying to buy votes. The Yang campaign says their council reviewed the plan to give out the money and gave their blessing to move ahead with it. Anyone picked to receive the money will receive a $1,000 monthly check from the campaign and a 1099 miscellaneous form to account for it in their taxes. End quote. This whole dust-up is going to continue, and presumably the FEC will issue a ruling. Oh wait, they can't because they don't have a quorum. Ugh. Check out our previous coverage of that if you like. But the whole thing gets at a fundamental misunderstanding of what Yang's policy even is. Yang's supporters are familiar with the concept and are completely comfortable with the idea of someone handing out cash to be spent however the recipient chooses. That is entirely the point of the exercise. Those who are not fans of a UBI look at this and say that Yang must be purchasing something by giving away money. It appears to them to be an exchange of value. Why spend money if it's not for a specific item in return, or somehow a gift? Therefore, they say, literally, either he's purchasing votes or giving illegal gifts. That is the wrong way to look at this. I think this move, more than anything else, will push the conversation about UBI into the mainstream, because it'll force people to grapple with the real question. What is the net effect of giving cash to people and allowing them to choose how they will spend it? I don't think it'll make the UBI issue any less controversial, don't get me wrong, but this moment with Yang exposed the different universes that Yang's supporters, and essentially the rest of the field, are living in. Which leads us to our next topic. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
All right, as we have for every debate, let's run through who spoke the most and the least. According to a measurement by the Washington Post, the most talk time went to Joe Biden with 17.4 minutes. Right behind him was Elizabeth Warren at 16.5, then there's a small dip down to Cory Booker at 14.7, Bernie Sanders at 14.1, and Kamala Harris at 13.7 minutes. And here are the remaining candidates in declining order. Buttigieg, Castro, Klobuchar, O'Rourke, and Yang. Yang got a total of 7.9 minutes of talk time compared to 17.4 at the top. Doing the math, that is less than half. So, this is the third time Yang has ended up dead last in talk time on a DNC debate stage out of the three appearances he has made. He actually got less time this round than back in the July debate when he had 8.7 minutes in total. Back in June, he got three minutes. In fact, if you add up all the talk time Yang has ever had on any DNC debate stage, it is still less than what Biden got on one night in July. And yet again, this has Yang supporters rightly riled up. Why is one candidate consistently such an outlier? Well, you'd have to ask NBC, CNN, and ABC, but it seems clear that none of them have prioritized equal time. This major disparity in talk time, coupled with other candidates openly laughing at this candidate's policies, really does seem insulting to me. We have the talk time metrics live during the event, and I think the DNC needs to step up and tell whoever's holding that October debate to let this guy talk, more broadly, to create and enforce some kind of metric in order to make sure that people on stage actually matter, that they get fair treatment. Yang met every single challenge the DNC has put in front of him, he gets to the stage, he's even polling better than a good chunk of that stage, and then he gets the least amount of time. Always. Now, that's a pattern, and whatever's causing it, I don't care. It's time to fix it. So I will keep reporting on this as long as it keeps happening. Now, you may recall that just after George Stephanopoulos asked Joe Biden for his closing statement, a very loud and long protest broke out in the audience. At home, I couldn't make out what they were saying, since it sure sounded like a bunch of people just yelling over one another. So, for all the viewers who asked last night, those protesters were apparently DACA recipients, who were in a dangerous position after the Obama-to-Trump switch left them in a kind of legal limbo. What they shouted was, quote, We are DACA recipients. Our lives are at risk. End quote. From the reporting I saw last night into this morning, they were escorted from the room and sort of ejected from the whole thing, but they were neither charged nor arrested. One of the toughest moments of the night was a clash instigated by Julian Castro against Biden on the topic of healthcare. It was a tough moment for multiple reasons. Let me just play this first clip and then we'll talk about it. George Stephanopoulos speaks first. Healthcare is the top issue for everyone in the country. I want to make sure everyone gets one minute to respond. So Senator Secretary Castro, Andrew Yang, and then Senator Booker, you uh, all get a minute. Uh, thank you. And, you know, I also want to recognize uh, the work that Bernie has done on this. Uh, and, of course, uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to President Barack Obama. Uh, of course, I also work for President Obama, uh, Vice President Biden. And I know that the problem with your plan is that it leaves 10 million people 
uncovered. Now, on the last debate stage in Detroit, you said that wasn't true when Senator Harris brought that up. There was a, a fact check of that, and they said that was true. Uh, you know, I grew up with a grandmother who had type 2 diabetes, and I watched her condition get worse and worse. Uh, but that whole time, she had Medicare. Uh, I want every single American family to have a strong Medicare plan available. If they choose to hold on to strong, solid private health insurance, I believe they should be able to do that. But the difference between what I support and what you support, Vice President Biden, is that you require them to opt in. And I would not require them to opt in. They would automatically be enrolled. They wouldn't have to buy in. That's a big difference because Barack Obama's vision was not to leave 10 million people uncovered. They, he wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would they not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. To buy in. If she qualifies, are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe that you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in, and now you're saying they don't have to buy. You're forgetting that. I said anyone I mean, like look, your grandmother who look, has no money. We need she a would, healthcare system you're automatically that automatically enrolled. enrolls people regardless of whether they choose to opt in or not. If you lose your job, for instance, his, his health care plan would not automatically enroll you. You would have to opt in. My health care plan would. That's a big difference. I'm fulfilling, fulfilling the legacy of Barack Obama, and you're not. I'll be surprised to him. Andrew Yang. Yeah, so you can hear the audience reaction there. Whether Castro intended it or not, this came across as Castro questioning whether Biden's memory was failing him due to age. The specific issue in question here is whether Biden's health care plan automatically enrolls people or not. Castro said that Biden had just said that his plan would not automatically enroll people. Well, let's rewind the tape and listen to what Biden said. By the way, this was about 10 minutes earlier. So listen in. Number one, my health care plan does significantly cut the cost of the largest out-of-pocket payment you'll pay is $1,000. You'll be able to get into a, anyone who can't afford it, gets automatically enrolled in, a, in, in, in the Medicare-type option we have, etc. But guess what? Now, if this is the clip Castro is referring to, he seems to be incorrect. Biden explicitly says his plan will automatically enroll people. Okay, so Castro might be referring to a clip that really was about two minutes prior to Castro's statement. Let's listen to that one. Look, everybody says we want an option. The option I'm proposing is a Medicare for all, in a Medicare for choice. If you want Medicare, if you lose the job from your insurance company, from your employer, you automatically can buy into this. You don't have no pre-existing condition can stop you from buying in. You get covered, period. Okay, so Biden says two things there. He does say the phrase buying in, but also is extremely clear that there is no block to people getting care, which is the larger point. And to quote Biden, you get covered, period, end quote. Okay, so who is correct here? Well, Castro has a minor point in that, yeah, Castro's plan is opt out and Biden's is opt in. But that actually doesn't mean a whole lot in practice. And Castro is wrong about what Biden said. I'm not sure if that's intentional or not, but he is just plain wrong. He is the one who misremembered. Reading here from PolitiFact, which fact-checked the whole exchange, quote, Castro's plan is an opt-out plan, while Biden's is an opt-in plan. But the differences between those are much less than Castro suggests. 
Biden's plan would guarantee Americans who are in need access to Medicare coverage just like Castro's would. The differences would likely amount to the nature or timing of paperwork rather than being significant barriers to access. Castro used this questionable distinction to charge that Biden had said opposing things within two minutes, but that's an exaggeration at best. The statement has an element of truth but ignores critical facts that would give a different impression, so we rate it mostly false. End quote. This whole thing led to a testy exchange with Buttigieg, reminiscent of the now classic food fight line from the Miami debate. Buttigieg said, quote, This is why presidential debates are becoming unwatchable. End quote. Things did remain relatively civil after that, and to be fair, if Castro's strategy is to gain attention and get his numbers up by going on the attack, this will probably do that. But it may also alienate some chunk of the electorate. All right, normally we would close Friday with a candidate anecdote, but we are running way long, and so I'm going to push that for next week. We do have one lined up. Okay, we're going to wrap up debate coverage with the closing statement from Mayor Pete Buttigieg. There were a lot of good closing statements last night, and I had to pick one. This one jumped out at me because in my lifetime, I have seen real change in what we thought a president might look like. When I was a kid, even if we believed in our hearts that, for instance, a person of color or a woman would be a good president, and we did believe that, it was not clear that this would actually happen in my lifetime. Seeing Barack Obama elected was frankly a revelation to me. I wasn't sure we were there as a country, but we were, and we remain. Seeing Clinton almost elected, well, I guess we weren't quite there, but we were truly close. And now seeing an openly gay man running for president and having the freedom and the respect to talk about his identity on national television without jokes, without self-deprecation, without marginalization is deeply moving to me. I'm young enough to understand that hope is real, and hope is all we've got. You wouldn't be listening to this right now if you didn't have some real dose of hope in there somewhere. But I'm also old enough to remember when we didn't think that those hopes were practical. But there are multiple people in this field right now who have already made history, and who could go on to make an even bigger change in our country. Here's one of them. You know, as uh, military officers serving under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and as an elected official in the state of Indiana when Mike Pence was governor, at a certain point, when it came to professional setbacks, I had to wonder whether just acknowledging who I was was going to be the ultimate career-ending professional setback. I came back from the deployment and realized that you only get to live one life, and I was not interested in not knowing what it was like to be in love any longer. So I just came out. I had no idea what kind of professional setback it would be, especially because, inconveniently, it was an election year in my socially conservative community. What happened was that when I trusted voters to judge me based on the job that I did for them, they decided to trust me and re-elected me with 80% of the vote. And what I learned was that trust can be reciprocated and that part of how you can win and deserve to win is to know what's worth more to you than winning. And I think that's what we need in the presidency right now. We have to know what we are about. And this election is not about any of us up here. It is not about 
this president, even though it's hard to talk of anything else some days. It's about the people who trust us with their lives. A kid wondering if we're actually going to make their schools safe when they've learned active shooter drills before they've learned to read. A generation wondering whether we will actually get the job done on climate change. And if we hold to that, then it doesn't matter what happens to each of us professionally. Together, we will win a better era for our country. Mayor Buttigieg, thank you. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Okay, I've been working on a special surprise, and you'll get to hear the first part of it on Monday. Monday's show will depart from our daily news format, and we'll have our first ever guest host. That's Kirby Ferguson, the creator of Everything is a Remix, among many other awesome things. He has taken over the show for one day to cover a special topic, and I'm not going to spoil that topic, but I think you'll find it to be fun and also very pertinent to this election. Because, hey, it's Kirby, and he's really good at this stuff, and I just heard the first draft today. It's great. So tune in for that, and I will, of course, cover anything that happens the next day. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to y'all on Tuesday.